Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today's podcast is recorded with our new audio setup. We tweeted about um, how we had invested in some audio equipment. So a big shout out to freedompodcasting.com. We went with their Focusrite 2Y2 setup with the Audio-Technica mics and I guess we'll let the listeners be the judge of whether or not it actually is a better setup. It could be great or it could just exacerbate all the minutiae of or idiosyncrasies of how I, I guess, speak into a mic. You know, it could be for the for better or for worse, right? Kind of like when HD came along and you could actually see everything, but that means that you could actually see everything. So it probably messed with a lot of people's um, television and video careers, right? Or movie careers. Also, just um, now that we're doing updates, I guess, like not that we usually do updates or anything, but we have submitted our uh, iTunes RSS feed. So... We will be iTunes official soon. Uh, we were under review and then we were accepted and then we were denied because our descriptions and our titles had explicit languages. That's that's how they defined it. So we cleaned that up and we resubmitted a ticket to be uh, reinstated into the iTunes thing. So from a technical standpoint, we, we've covered all the W3C standards and they're okay with it. And now they they just need to vet the language because, of course, you know, the Apple Store needs to be PC as far as uh, anything goes, because they need to be able to sell it to anybody with the mark of explicit or non-explicit. The actual content can be explicit, which is uh, great, right? So that being said, I guess uh, today I, I wanted to talk a little bit about F1 because I was watching the, I think it was the Belgian Grand Prix, and it was really, really interesting because it, the thought hadn't really occurred to me before, but then I realized there's a lot of technology that goes into a Formula One racing. And I mean, like, technology from like car technology but also from a like software development perspective where a lot of the the components that they're including in the cars now have there's a lot of embedded programming going on that allows the car to basically do continuous feedback that you can adjust if you've ever seen the formula one steering wheels they have a lot of buttons and stuff that they can adjust all all these things and that component in and of itself is actually pretty intricate and and probably involves a lot of systems programming and embedded systems programming but also the massive amounts of real-time data that they're sending back to the pit crew that allows them to make the judgments of whether they want to like shift the power forward shift the power backwards and allow the engineering team to communicate with the formula one driver what they should do in order to win win the race basically or do better at their performance because when you're competing at the f1 level it seems to be the case that it's no longer so much about the actual like oh i came i mean it it is like about oh i came in first and that's great but it, just ranking the podium seems to be a feat in and of itself but just doing you know well in general is a it's a massive feat because i mean th- like when you see some articles online they're kind of misleading because they talk about a competitor winning by just a couple seconds but just a couple seconds like two seconds and f1 is a massive massive distance because everybody's so good at what they do and they perform at such a high level that two seconds is a massive gap i mean it is and it isn't because just as easy as easily as you gained it if your pit stop is you know the difference between 2.5 and 3 and then you you know you pit twice then that's a whole second right so when they say just two seconds like two seconds is everything so so i thought i researched i do a little bit of research of what it takes to do software development in f1 and actually what i found was it's not so much software development because they're on the race they're dealing with data it's more of information technology so i was a little disappointed in that sense but then i thought no 
if an IT department, like quote unquote department, whatever to be legit, that's about as legit as it gets because every second counts and all the feedback counts, right? And everything is real time. And so the last thing you want is a disaster or an issue or a latency at the at that level, right? At that at that level. And you're dealing with massive data. So you have to be able to aggregate it, make sense of it, and then report it back. So there's probably a lot of software development that went into getting it right in the first place. So I looked into it to some of the technology that they use, and it actually turns out that they use a lot of um, the data analysis or like BA tools, which I was just like, that's a, that's a little odd, but because I thought it'd all be custom dev, right? Since they spent so much effort engineering and tweaking and customizing every part of the car, like if you see some of the stuff that goes on in F1, it's all you know component based and stuff. And actually, if I can sidetrack for a second, a lot of the technology that we see in our cars today is directly derivative from the advancements that they do in formula one when they add restrictions to the cars for as far as like safety or whatever the f1 com- i guess commission or board decides that they're going to restrict that year or that season and um, that's actually really interesting because they've added a restriction where they have to include a like power unit or a battery and incorporate like, an electrical motor or something like that to the cars so we're starting to see a jump in the technology for i guess electric vehicles right that are a part of f1 aside from like just the continuing development of safety because if um you remember the monaco grand prix i think it was a couple of months back one of the contenders i think from the red bull team clipped another guy his tires came off and they're they're now attached with wire because before they would basically detach or detach themselves from the vehicle and like end up um, impaling a, a spectator and so now they're attached but not only that but the, that car went from somewhere between 130 miles an hour to zero in like two seconds and the driver i mean granted he's like 17 which is actually like crazy young he still got out of that crash like nothing had happened he just sort of like got up and shook it out but to go from 120 to zero almost instantaneously and to walk away unharmed is like fucking insane that is insanity and that to me is actually really really interesting and it's actually one of the one of the few times or one of the few times that i lament that i went into more of a web development consulting route because i see that kind of stuff and that kind of advancement in technology that is so directly correlated to the like cars that are on the road and stuff like that and how all the crash safety stuff is like getting better and like how all the suspensions are getting better and stuff like that and while that is not software development or you know at least some of it's not software development that is clearly has a quotidian advantage or not advantage but impact to to the to the regular people i mean i can see why we wouldn't be so quick to jump to that sort of um, development so i don't know if you guys saw but a month back or so some guys hacked a jeep while it was driving down the highway at like 70 miles an hour uh they turned off the car i think and they also did things like control the radio and the wipers and stuff like that and that's really really scary now granted that wasn't just a jeep driving down the side of the road 70 miles an hour somebody on the side of the road caught the signal and then like went in they had done something to the vehicle Something that, you, something that you have access to when like someone services it, if you take it in to get serviced and someone decides to do this thing to it, they now have remote control access to your vehicle, which is scary in and of itself. But that just sort of shows the vulnerability 
that there is in adding that much technology to a vehicle, right? Because now there's a bunch of onboard computers. If you look at the Lexus LFA2, that one is probably one of the world's most advanced, um, I guess, yeah, that's considered a supercar, which ironically is really expensive and also really slow. It's one of the slowest supercars, but I mean, it's still a supercar, don't get me wrong, and it's a beautiful looking car, and it's probably has one of the, probably has the most computers, uh, onboard computers in a car out there right now, which is really, so it's kind of sad that it's not the fastest, but if you put it on track, I'm sure that it it doesn't disappoint. And I'm pretty sure that when you drive it around, the feeling is great, whatever. That just sort of, that's sort of scary, right? Because the that means that car software development or embedded systems development for vehicles is still in its infancy. And, you know, Google's developing the driving car. And I keep telling people that Google is going to, either develop their own platform or buy Uber and then just put the self-driving car. So when you go outside, you're just going to order a self-driving car and the pain point's going to the yeah, pain point or the cost point's going to be so low that it's going to be easier to get an Uber to work with a Google car than it is going to be to drive your own car, right? That's the future, my friends. So that has a very clear path and a very clear impact as into how it affects the world around us, right? And that's one of the few times that I lament um, that I went into more of the consulting software development route because when you see something like that, that is so inspiring and I want to be a part of that. But when I looked into like, well, how do you get into software development for F1 and that kind of stuff, you're really just doing software development for embedded systems and you're never looking at the holistic piece. You're working on like maybe one piece of the car that deals with maybe like suspension adjustment or maybe like regulation of power or like some, something, right? But it's one piece of the big puzzle that makes the whole thing work together. And that's specialized. I know that some people like to specialize. You know, that's why there exists PhDs. That's why there exists database specialists. That's why there exists, you know, you know pick, pick your thing that you're really into. But to me... The reason I became a full stack engineer is because I get bored really easy and I need a lot. I rather know a begin with knowing a breadth of things. And then as I need to fill in the gaps and become more specialized, do that, become more specialized as I go along and not all at once. One approach, right? So another approach for people's, I guess, career or the way they approach problems is they specialize in one aspect of a big puzzle. So like there's a front end developer and that's what they do. And they're really, really good at it. Right. Or like a Java script, like front end expert. Right. Or even, even more specialized than that, a mobile expert or an expert in like, you know, writing like the animations or the transforms for like material design and that kind of stuff like the, you know, all the sweet stuff. Um, and that, that seems while I find those things intriguing and I'd find them interesting and I'd want to do them when I need to do them to specialize and only do that, only do front end development or only do back end development or only do database administration just seems so mundane and boring. Even now that I get to be at my current job where I get to play with a bunch of stacks like the rail stack. I know that the, you know, the, MBC stack, MBC five with .NET. I know that. I know C sharp. That's pretty good too, and that's fun. And you know, um, the not so fun stuff like PHP and Magento, and like PHP and Drupal. You know, Drupal seven. I know, I know that stuff too. And they are all a means to the same end, right? With a different focus. So 
the Magento fo- the Magento has an e-commerce focus. Uh, Drupal has a focus on like building the website, and then there's the thing called Aqueous, which is a AWS style. I guess it's I know that it's written or backed by AWS, like the not that Amazon sanctions it, but the actual technology is built on the AWS technology, and it basically is a package where it sets up all that stuff for you for production and all that good stuff and it's um, packaged a Drupal 7 install and it just launches it for you and you can scale it and it makes it really easy, right? I know how to do that too. Like the actual AWS stuff, right? And I find that interesting. But what ends up happening is, and the relevation sort of came when I needed to do Toyota Ever Better Expedition site for, you know, something that Toyota's going to have up for maybe six months and we needed to roll it out as part of a tech thing for a contract that we had with Toyota we ended up rolling out the Aqueous. So the way that we approached it was like, okay, we need to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. What would a solution that has this, this, and that look like, right? And so I went and I um, I was in charge of looking up like, okay, what does the AWS solution architecture look like? You know, I did a typical setup. Like you want a load balancer, you know, maybe some instances, and uh, you want to share like the memory here, and then the Drupal talks to this, and then you connect to this database, AWS instance here. So it was really simple. It was really easy to look at, and I'm like, if you want to scale it, you just either beef up the AWS, or you do this, and you know, you do that, and you check it here and there. And it was good, and it could be done, and it would have been done rather easily, but it would have taken maybe like a couple days to set up, like flesh out the the architecture and make sure that it's working correctly and then maybe a couple more days to install the the drupal stuff make sure it's working everything's communicating correctly that you're verifying everything in the boxes you know at a leisurely pace an eight hour work day right and then like maybe you do some load testing to see like how how well it scales and, and then you can start deving and then you have to set up the you know the good stuff and all that good stuff that was my solution and the timeline was maybe one week and then we padded it with two weeks just in case, you know, like shit hits the fan or something doesn't go right. The Aqueous solution was ready in two days. We basically turned it on. It came, like the project came versioned. Like by default, when you install it, they, it's versioned with their, their Git stuff and it's connected to, I think either we connected it to GitHub or it comes internally versioned. I, I honestly forget. I can't remember. It was then that I realized that knowing a breadth of information is good because when I saw the Aqueous solution, I was like, oh, we definitely should go with that. Whereas if you had a traditional, maybe like four-man team, like a database specialist, a back-end specialist, a front-end specialist, and then like a a business analyst that's sort of looking at it, putting together, if the business analyst doesn't have the foresight or because of the composition of the team says, I have three specialists, might have gone with the other setup, and there would have been a lot of like rework done that the that an agency might have had to eat the cost in order to deliver something on time for uh in this case toyota right that's not anybody's fault like that's not a fault of the engineers that like they can't dev fast enough fast enough or something like that because they probably can like in this theoretical because it's all theoretical but they probably could and like let's say you had really three billion engineers it would still take time to set all that up and have that all connected and make sure that um com- that everything was working end to end right so getting back to my point so one might look at that and be like that is a very interesting very engaging project right in in that project I, you know i wore a couple of hats i did the the architecture i did some architecture for it and then ended up advising the business analyst to go with something that provided the architecture for us and made it more maintainable to hand over to the IT 
or whatever um, the ITs called for Toyota. I forget. I forget who who whoever was going to maintain that project after we finished the development. Then I actually did some software development. Then I did some front end development. I did some stuff, and it was all of it was good and fun. And you know, we had to work within the the Drupal constraints, like using the their their way of doing things, like the the blocks and all that stuff. The the view the views, the blocks and the structure and stuff. Given a choice, I would do full custom dev. I'm a big fan of just choosing a stack for the particular problem. So like if the problem is we need to build a really dynamic site, then I'd be more inclined to be like, okay, well, let's use like Backbone or let's use like Angular. Or let's use something that it allows for that dyna dynamic development, you know? So I'm fortunate enough to have a job that allows me to do that and then allows me to basically play around with all these stacks and all these languages to see the good to see the bad and and i mean the good is really good when you see like backbone and you can make it work really cleanly with like rails or really cleanly with some other framework and you see it all come together and your development speed is like ridiculously fast and uh there's requests coming in from your client or you know from the internal vision of the team and then you're just banging them out really quickly it's really nice to be in that groove and it's really nice to have that kind of focus right um, so the highs are really high, but also the lows are really low because <clears throat> at the same time you could run into like V bulletin and then be asked to, you know, skin V bulletin and that's built on PHP. It seems to be very database driven and very XML driven. It is probably one of the worst software architectures I've ever seen personally. I was just offended by it. I, I, as a developer, I don't like it. I don't like that I have to work with it. I can see why a consumer would like it. I don't think that if I was involved in a developing a bulletin board system that I would ever, ever architect something like that. And I think it has to do with that the stack and the developers on it are probably older gentlemen that are used to doing things a certain way and don't want to do it differently, right? This isn't so much a criticism as an opinion. Like some people might really like it, some people really like PHP. I think PHP is probably one of the worst web languages out there of the web languages. You know, not now that Python is a, a 2.7 is considered a web language. Ruby is considered a web language. Even Perl, I would consider it. Well, no, yeah, even Perl, because at least Perl doesn't give you like white pages of death, right? Well, depending on the stack you're using. Or what I've been trying to do this last few minutes is basically paint an idea of what a project of many uh, projects that I'm involved in at my work um, sort of look like. So by any any reasonable individual would be like, well, your job seems pretty entertaining and pretty fun and you seem to be very empowered to make the decisions that you need to make that would help the team and actually contribute to them, right? So it's supposed to be entertaining. I get bored at my job. I think some of the stuff is boring. And the stuff that's exciting to me is the stuff that is um, public facing. So I've built a lot of interesting applications that are not public facing. So I don't feel fulfilled, right? For example, I guess I do have two public facing applications that are just not under my name. I helped Final Draft with the conversion from, I think, when iOS 7 came out or or when they did the transition from like skeuomorphic to flat. I was there for Final Draft to help them with that conversion. And then the second public-facing thing, and so that, that went to market. And actually, while I was there, they won the technical Emmy. I wasn't there for very long. <laughs> I will admit that because that's misleading to just sort of say that, oh, yeah, I was there, and then we helped them with this, and then they won a technical Emmy. Um, I'm pretty sure they had that a long time coming from their contributions and the way that they've changed 
writing is done in Hollywood, right? And then the second public-facing thing that I did was the Porsche Vehicle Delivery app, which also was originally architected by a bastard. Um, I'm not going to name him. I don't want to promote him at all. But it was, first of all, he didn't do it the iOS way, which anytime that you're going to use a framework or a stack and they have ways of doing things, you're supposed to use them because otherwise you're going to be fighting that framework and fighting that stack and fighting that way of doing things the whole time. So basically this this person had architected a design that by the time it was done, it was all XML driven. And you're like, well, how do you incorporate XML into iOS? Uh, you know, it doesn't have that. Well, there's a file called the plist file, which on, if you look under the hood is an XML driven file. So the whole application was driven by the plist file, which is very 1989, not the actual like plist thing, but like to have something be driven by XML is very old school and had basically coded himself into a box where any sort of development that you'd want to do on top of that would take a crazy amount of time. And so this, and so he was asking for a crazy amount of money because he had basically designed a system that in this person's mind, only he would know to do, right? And so we had to go in and basically reverse engineer what the fuck this guy had built, figure it out, and then rebuilt it. What kind of hubris do you have to have to think that you're so smart that your design that no one's going to be able to come in and figure it out? You're not that smart. And there doesn't it doesn't make any sense to be malicious in that regard because for however smart you may be there's a couple things that you may let's say you're really smart like when i see really beautiful code it's usually code that at first i don't understand but i always like to take a, a list uh i take take a minute to look at it and see okay how did this person build this thing why did they build it this way and sometimes i do that and sometimes you're like oh oh, you didn't know about this, and that's why you've been doing it this way. Oh, my God, that's awful, right? They just they were missing. There was gaps in their knowledge that didn't allow them to do something a certain way, which is the, the correct way or the easy way to do them. The second part is you see it, and you're like, oh, my God, that's really clever, and you've leveraged this one tool or this one feature of the language a certain way that allows you to be more powerfully expressive in your, you know, so on and so forth, right? Either way, even the code that's like, very ingenious right if you look at it long enough and you think about it long enough or if you have the time you will eventually reverse engineer that and figure it out if you wrote it someone out there with enough time or an equal amount of intelligence or more intelligence will be able to decipher what you write so it doesn't make sense to write on readable code so i like to write code that you know reads like a book right all my variables make sense. The the functions they they have very descriptive things. Like some people hate it, they think it's annoying. It's like the the way that iOS sort of does things, where even the variables fit in. So when you read something, you're like, oh, do this and this with this, right? And um, it makes for very verbose, very long code, right? So if you're trying to golf it, that really doesn't help. But at the end of the day, it makes it really legible so that the next person that comes in can actually decipher and figure it all out and be like, oh, this is what I was trying to do. And even you, like. When you write a piece of code and you put it down and you come back to it like a couple of months later, on if you don't make it expressive and you don't make it like really obvious as to what you were doing or you don't comment it, I mean, I believe in self-commenting code, right? So if you write it in such a way that it reads really easily, then you'll be able to come back to it and and figure it out. So even when I was working on those two things, which are like the most exciting things and the most fruitful things, when I'm in it, it's the suck. It, it sucks. But those two things were actually were actually interesting to me because 
while I was doing it, it was boring when I looked back on it and I looked at the fruits of my labor, the impact was high enough that I found it to be really interesting. However, a lot of client work is not like that. There's a lot of stuff that I that we got contracted to, my company got contracted to to build for Red and I ended up doing a chunk of the development. There was a project, an internal project that did some like conversions for 4K stuff, you know. Um, that was really interesting and I got to work on that and while I'm sure that they use it and that it's very useful to them, the fact that I can't tout it or that I, I've signed some NDAs that I can't release the specifics of how that works makes it kind of boring, right? It, then it feels like it was for naught. There was another one where I had to do some Wi-Fi programming. So like basically through the iPad, you can control the settings on the camera. That was really, really fun too. But again, that was also internal. So that was, it was for naught. So I've been doing a lot of that and I get the feeling, I get the sense that I'm sort of forced into that because I find those wide varying things like one involved like co uh, doing iOS development that uh, talked to the red API that would talk to the cameras, right? That's a lot. That's very interesting, right? And then the other one was like some conversion stuff and that was interesting. And then before that, there was like the, the Odamax project that they were trying to launch um, a 4K content distribution system. And that was interesting. And then another another client that I worked with was uh, I used to work on was a California cryobank. And that was a different, you know, subset of problems. And that was interesting. And the ones that I'm really proud of are the ones that are have the most impact. But... In the grand scheme of things, the impact that I have was, well, those that use the red stuff, they've been benefited somehow. So that's low impact because the, the market is so not small in the sense that it doesn't have money, but small in the sense of the amount of users that it hits. Right. And then same thing with California Cryobank. I'm only hitting a certain amount of users for a medium sized company. And then the same thing with uh, the, the the other project, I guess the biggest project is probably Toyota, but we cr tracked the metrics for that and the audience reach just wasn't that big so but the audience reach for an advancement in like car technology is it's massive or the 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 audience reach when you improve a a something in like a chip or like an intel chip is massive because everything runs on intel right well not everything right because there's a, there's obviously different architectures like there's um the amd architecture and all that stuff so i'm not gonna discount them right but you get what i'm saying right but it's like a catch-22 because I can't do that type of development because I would get so bored that I wouldn't be able to do it. I think I would just, I'd probably like, if I'm like bored myself to death or I end up looking at Hacker News and just clicking on stuff, right? And so I'm in this dilemma, whereas I don't think that I can do web development for the rest of my life or any sort of full stack development for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I don't think I can specialize either because it's so boring that I might just have to like end up leaving the field. So I guess the real question to see is how do the people around me and how do the, those that are also involved in software development sort of get past this? I think a lot of them move into like project management or they start moving up the corporate ladder, but then you see some holdouts some like older gentlemen, older gentlemen, like the mainframe programmers or the legacy code programmers, like the people that do the Fortran. I'm, I don't know that they are particularly fulfilled, but they are so needed that the that companies probably just throw massive amounts of money at them to make sure that they're 
that they can get him or they, they've been doing the same thing for so long that they can't leave they're trapped changing careers or changing a job would be, it would be like starting over so one of the pitfalls that i'm really glad that i avoided when i was younger is that um when i had graduated or right before when i had graduated jp morgan chase made an offer of at the time it was a lot because for, for someone to go from making nothing to making um seventy two thousand dollars that was the offer and then move to delaware where the cost of living is low er <laughs> right is lower that's a huge offer but in return for jp morgan chase i would have to have done um cobalt programming that is a career ender if you get hired on and your first job is to do some legacy programming and you do that for five years and then you try to go somewhere else good fucking luck good luck getting another job that is a career ender so i'm really happy that i avoided that and that I now have a medium and a skill set to, if I develop the right thing, I could have potentially the, an audience reach of anybody on the internet, right? Like, what is the audience reach of Facebook? I bet those engineers feel really good about themselves, even though I've criticized Facebook to be a dying technology. And not because they're bad and not because they're, you know, any of that stuff. It's just that, um, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I don't use it anymore. I end up just texting my friends and i imagine that younger kids are on snapchat and um yik yak and all that stuff it's just not relevant anymore and that's why they have to keep buying other technologies so that they can basically with the money that they've built up from facebook absorb other technologies and try to make themselves relevant again and they sort of done that with the sort of pushing that envelope with their um, facebook messenger app but if you look at it we're just sort of going in circles because messenger was around since the beginning of the internet, like um, IRC Internet Relay Chat, which is what um, basically AIM was a rapper for, is uh, has been around since the beginning. It's been around since the, the existence of the internet. Before MSN Messenger and before AIM and before Yahoo Messenger and before people left that to go to Facebook and then ended up with the Facebook app again. They went in one big circle. Before all that, there was um, IRC and you'd get through it using like Ersty and then you'd keep a screen open so that you could just come back to it, you know, whenever you wanted on your computer, right? That was the way that you did things. And before that, there was a uh, bulletin boards, right? And what is a wall or a wall post except like a feed of bulletin boards? So basically we've taken the, we've taken like three concepts, like bulletin boards are like RRS feeds internet relay chat and like bundled it all together and that's how you got facebook it's all sort of the same thing the thing that they offer is instantaneous communication to see what people are doing right you can just sort of see what your friends are doing and you you're obviously gonna some people post like some whiny shit on there but other people post some genuinely genuinely interesting stuff right but i've sort of gone away from that and gone to the crux of what i want i want an rss feed for the things that i'm interested in so that's kind of what twitter's become right because people are linking stuff like that so and that's another one that has a huge audience reach so I, I don't know if that's why i'm inclined to do the podcast and i'm inclined to put this stuff out there and i'm inclined to be more engaged because i feel like that is more fulfilling because it has an audience reach and because maybe through my concerted efforts i can speak to some of the feelings that other developers might have or might not be feeling so hot about and that yeah this is normal i'm pretty sure that i've be, i've come to understand why the half-life of a software developer 
developers so quick. You look to the older gen, you look to the older generation of software developers, and you see assholes developing stuff in PHP, like doing V bulletin shit and driving stuff with XML, which is fucking awful. And you see sub requests, which is fucking awful. There's so much overhead, and you see middleware, which is fucking awful, right? And then at the same time, you, you you take a look back and you see some of the people that are starting and you see some of the worst fucking code um, that anybody's like ever written because it's basically um, coding around the stuff that's either supposed to help them or coding coding the stuff that comes built in to the framework that they're using because they don't know it's there. So looking forward looking forward you 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 see okay i'm going to be an older developer and this is what people are going to think of me and it could be the case that that is a legitimate assessment of the skills that i've acquired for example when you see a very seasoned rails developer that's doing that's actually using the templating engine and doing things like um Edit, like loading the edit dot uh, js dot erp or using the basically dot js dot erp files to load certain views and having that run and execute and when you run the templating it actually treats it like a callback like if you're if you're rendering partials within the thing and running javascript that way of developing sort of does away with the Ajax um, callbacks, right? Like it doesn't, you don't explicitly state them. But when you come in as a developer that has um, sort of grown up in their career with things like Backbone and Angular and basically these frameworks that have solved it so you don't have to do, templating engines that have solved, templating engines that have solved this so that you don't have to do those things, you look at that and you're like, whoa, that person's antiquated. And not only are they antiquated, nine times out of ten, they don't want to change or learn the new technology because their development speed or their value, they, they see their value in how fast they can develop and put out a product, right? Because at the end of the day, the client's going to see the, the front end of it, not the internal workings of it. And they say, my value is in that I can put this out quickly. Why am I going to learn this new technology that the kids are doing when I can do exactly the same end in a different way, but quicker, right? And that is a valid question. That is a valid question that you have to ask yourself sometimes. Like, should I learn this new technology? How do I see between what is a trend and what is, what's here to stay? And how do I maintain my velocity, right? Because at the end of the day, if you are a resource that can do the same thing that four people can do it, and you can do it as fast or if not faster then those four people, if they have to coordinate, then you are a valuable resource and they can pay you less, right? Which to you will still be more, like they pay you, let's say $150,000 a year, right? That is still cheaper than hiring a DB specialist, hiring a, let's say you didn't pay the DB specialist, let's say you didn't pay any of the specialists much, right? Let's say you just paid them like under market value because you're not an SFO, you're like down here in LA, right? Then um, you paid them like, 85 each or 90, right? Let's say you paid them 90. You, you pay your DB 90, your DB specialist 90, your backend specialist 90, and your front end specialist maybe a little bit less, right? Like 80. You do a 90, 90, 80. That puts you at like two, it puts you in the 200, right? You don't even need to finish the math for that. You can pay one guy 150,000 or even 180,000 to do all three jobs and to do it at this at around about a speed that you think is um, appropriate that person is getting in their mind a lot of money and you as a a uh, employer are saving a lot of money right so it's a win-win 
except now you may be stuck with a guy that's writing legacy code. So now you're stuck in a situation where you basically have to plan what your exit strategy is. And that really worries me because the same way that I'm worried that even though I'm doing all these different things and all these different stacks and playing around with all these different languages and having at what at this at the time can be really, really fun and at other times can seem really still mundane and repetitive, then looking at like what a new developer, what a ju- really green developer looks like, a really junior developer looks like, what a, you know, developer that's been doing it like two or three like maybe even four years looks like and what a senior developer looks like the half-life is so small that we actually might have a problem because we're basically encouraging a lot of people to go into software development or computer science or like that kind of stuff and in computer science especially i'm not sure about the other engineering and the other sciences the half-life is so short that we might actually have like a mini bubble or problem when our market might become so saturated that you you take the best and maybe the best get bored or start doing their own thing but basically at some point or another they're gonna have to leave and they're gonna have to leave and do other jobs at a much earlier rate than other engineering jobs if that makes sense right so the the issue here is that we're going to have a bubble of people that are not retiring but basically ending their programming career and moving on to something else are going to have to either because they're getting too old and no one wants to hire them and then there's that bias of oh you have antiquated technology in your brain or an antiquated way of doing things in your brain that are no longer relevant to the technology that's coming today or because they like me Maybe maybe you looked at it and said, oh, this is a lot of the same thing and got bored and therefore have to move into another space. But either way, that's if you have a big enough sector of the population, I don't know what the numbers are. I imagine they're really, really big, right? Because Silicon Valley is huge. And, you know, now we're calling we're, we're getting this. The They're starting to trying to coin the term Silicon Beach, right? Because technology in Santa Monica is getting huge, too. We're going to have a problem where all these developers either for that are not maybe not specifically in the corporate sector or maybe even the ones that are in the corporate sector are going to get bored and are going to have to move either up or out or somewhere else that we're going to ha- we're going to see either something really interesting or something really scary happen where there's going to be like maybe an outflux and either a saturation into another market or we're going to have the same issue that the NASA and the Boeing engineers had after the space race where a lot of them after the funding was cut for NASA after like the the you know the like the big like cold war space race time a lot of them ended up doing like weird shit I heard stories of guys that like basically went together, bought a franchise like a McDonald's or something. Like I don't know if McDonald's is franchised, bought a, a, a bought into a franchise like that, basically opened that up and started running that as a business. Nothing to do with what they studied, nothing to do with actual rocket science. But these rocket scientists were running like a freaking McDonald's. I'm sure they made a ton of money and I'm sure they landed on their feet. The one that you see in computer science is that a lot of computer scientists turn into physicists and a lot of physicists get really intrigued and turn into computer scientists. So there's a lot of jumping around like that, except that if you're a computer scientist and you're trying to jump into the field of physics, good fucking luck, because even the physicists are having a hard time getting employed. Right. So either you're going to jump into back into academia, whether into academia, where there's no fucking money or you're going to try to jump into the marketplace that doesn't really exist and probably doesn't have any fucking money. Right. So. Like, if you're a physicist, what job can you get right now? You either work for JPL, 
which doesn't pay much. I've seen their offer. And not only that, they seem very interested in grades still. I mean, what you're going to take someone that's been doing software development. You're, you're, they're trying to hire people to do like web stuff, right? And they've been doing software development for a couple of years. Not only are they offering them lower money, but they're sub, they're subjecting them to drug tests, which is because they're a government agency, like to make sure that they're not on. I mean, like some of the amphetamines and stuff like that's fine. But like like weed's going to test positive and they're not going to give you a job if that comes up. They're they're paying them less, subjecting them to to drug tests, but then also asking them for like their school grades. Do you think that nothing happens between the time that you leave school and start acquiring all the skills that that somehow somehow or other still relevant? That is the same thing like when Google does their interviews and they like basically haze you for three rounds. It, it's insulting. It really is. It's insulting and demeaning. And basically, they're just trying to, because they have enough people that want to work to them, work for them. They're basically seeing who, like a fucking prize dog, is willing to jump through the hoops to work for them. And that's just that's dirty. That's nasty. That's not. That's insulting. That you shouldn't. You're gonna lose a lot of good developers. A lot of people that would potentially work for you are gonna not work for you because that's disgusting. That's a disgusting thing to do. And on that note, um, that's how I got sort of into, or that was the driving factor for me to like start doing something else like, you know, maybe podcasting or start doing things on the side, like, you know, recreational software development, playing around with things like Prolog, playing around with things like functional languages like Haskell and trying to see what modes of thought or what other things you can solve that could potentially be useful to people and where you can apply that elastic mind that you've created that you've sort of gained a you be, you become a professional problem solver that happens to use a computer as their main weapon of choice to basically chop down and like eviscerate problems from from real life and that's what we are that's what we all are all engineers are or maybe not engineers because some engineers view their thing as being really good at the execution piece for the thing that they're trying to do. But the way I view engineering is maybe more of a a scientist viewpoint because I guess I'm, I am a computer scientist where I want to solve a problem. I'm a professional problem solver and my tools of choice are mathematics and a computer. And with these two tools, I'm going to fucking solve any problem that you throw my way and I'm going to try to contribute back to the world. In exchange, I want money, basically, right? That's that's what a job is, right? But you know, it it the thing is that it doesn't have to be money. It could be exposure. You can it, you can want the the praise or a public figure, whatever gets you. You're going to want something in return. For me, right now at this point in time, it's money. In the future, it might be you know maybe time for me and my family when I make a family, right? The things that you want in return change. And your tools of execution as time goes along can change. The biggest thing for me is I'm excited to see what all these software developers are going to do and what tool they're going to decide to change to when they become tired of the mundane and repetitive, mundane repetitiveness of the, of the same tools to solve the same problems in computer science. All right, that's enough of that. Um, so thank you for tuning in. Um, just to reiterate, we have a Twitter handle at shootthebit. Doc, at shootthebit. Um, check out our website www.shootthebit.com. We 
post all our episodes on our website too if you don't want to integrate a stream for us um keep an eye out for us on the itunes uh we're going to be there really really soon just shoot the bit google um not google just uh, search shoot the bit um we should be showing up tell your friends about us tell tell everybody tell everybody we're we're ready greg and chris uh will come i know i've been saying that uh, over and over again we are the dream team and we're going to get the dream team together although if we actually all three of us get together i'm not sure how we're gonna um all talk in the same into the same thing because the scar uh, the scarlet focus right thing is a two i two meaning that it only takes two microphones in at the same time so that'll be interesting but i'm sure our engineering minds or problem solving minds are gonna get together and you know figure that one out all right um that's it for that's it for this time i hope you enjoy the new audio quality and until next time